0: To the Melinda Eitzen Show. I'm Melinda Eitzen. Today we have with us Brandon Joseph from the McClure Law Group. Brandon is a divorce attorney like I am. So we're going to talk about some interesting divorce stuff today. Welcome, Brandon.
1: Hi, Melinda. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So glad you're here. I
1: appreciate the invitation.
0: So I wore red today because we're going to talk about adultery.
1: <laughs> <laughs> how appropriate. <laughs>
0: so adultery and other bad acts that show up in our divorce cases and how... What effect that has on everything. So do you have adultery in your divorce cases?
1: Oh, in almost every divorce case. (laughs) As unfortunate as that may sound, that's one of the leading factors um, in divorce. And frankly, one of the things that makes an individual want to file for divorce, I think.
0: Yes, I agree. I see the same (laughs) thing. So. For our audience, what is the legal definition of adultery?
1: All right. So under Texas law, the legal definition of adultery is the voluntary sexual intercourse um, of a married person with someone who is not their spouse.
0: So having sex with somebody else.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: What the common person would think. But one thing that I have people complain about is sometimes there's a relationship that isn't sexual, but it's emotional. And they'll say, "My, I think my spouse is having an emotional affair although not good, would that fall into that definition?
1: It would not fall into the definition of what a legal adultery is, but I think that there are other things that may need to be considered to you know involving the emotional relationship. So, for example, um, there could be things that may impact other areas of the divorce case, although it may not lead to a finding of legal adultery.
0: Why does it matter if there's, from a legal standpoint, why does it matter if somebody has legally committed adultery under the law?
1: So under the law, well, Texas is a no-fault state. That's what we call it. So what that essentially means is that you can be divorced in Texas without proving that one party is at fault. However, if there is adultery, you could bring that in the lawsuit as a ground for divorce, which would be a fault ground. Um, that's an important distinction to make because when dividing the property, the court, can, uh, the court can consider fault in the breakup of the marriage in dividing property. So meaning a fault ground, like adultery, could be taken into consideration if one party is requesting more than, let's say, 50% of the community estate.
0: So that's a big um, misunderstanding a lot of people have is that it's not just 50-50
1: no matter what. Exactly. The court in Texas is mandated to divide the property in a manner that is just and right. And so effectively, the court has discretion in determining the manner in which it will divide the property.
0: And as you said, adultery is on the list. So there's a list of factors the court can consider when they're deciding if to go away from 50-50 division. Exactly. Adultery is one of them. So uh, that's why somebody might care, right? Exactly. I want to prove it. I want to prove. I want right. to have the PI follow them, and I'm going to get the picture.
1: <laughs> right. And the law actually tells us how one may prove adultery, and it has to be something more than just a mere innuendo or suggestion of adultery. So you actually do need the proof.
0: I had a case once where the proof was the guy was on business, out of town on business, which is sometimes the danger zone, and the PI actually got the hotel room across from his hotel room and got the picture of the woman coming to the hotel room and he has opened the door and he's shirtless.
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) It's
0: like, that's pretty good proof.
1: Exactly, exactly. Uh,
0: And she, um, after the divorce, she published that. She had a little packet she put together And sent it to his employer, his mother. Yes. (laughs) She did not want to just prove it to the court. So um, be wary, people. The PI could be following you wherever you may be. So watch out. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we know it, it could be a factor. In reality, in your experience, how often does the court actually... Consider it like when you come in and say, "Ha ha! Here's this amazing photo." Adultery, we've caught you. Are they now going to get one percent of the estate, and the the wronged spouse is going to get ninety nine percent?
1: Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. I think that the law is that the court may consider it, and I, I think the courts do consider it. However, because it is so common, I think that in a lot of ways it's not as persuasive as it might otherwise be. So, for example, because the court has the discretion, a claim of adultery by itself will not necessarily result in some sort of a windfall to one spouse over the other. Um, I do believe that, you know, the courts will consider it, but the overall division with only a claim of adultery will probably still land somewhere not far from 50-50 in my experience. So whether that's 52% to the spouse, you know, who was wronged and 48% to the innocence or to the wrong, I'm sorry, whether that's 48% of the property to the spouse who committed adultery, or 52% of the uh, estate to the spouse who was wrong. I think that's within the purview of the court. And and frankly, in my experience, the judges don't deviate very far from 50-50 just based on adultery alone.
0: So people are very disappointed when they call me and I tell them that.
1: Oh, yes. Almost every day. Almost every day we have that discussion.
0: And what they'll say is, I know. I've talked to other lawyers, and say this the judges don't care about adultery. Oh, yeah.
1: That's how we usually say it. The judges just don't <laughs> care, uh, as it relates to the property division.
0: And we don't mean that our judiciary doesn't care generally, right? right? I think we have good judges who do care about people, but they do not typically give a ton of weight to the adultery piece.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: And one reason, maybe, is that they realize that adultery is a symptom of a failed marriage and typically not the reason that the marriage fails. Exactly. People in happy marriages don't go commit adultery typically.
1: Right. I mean, and I think that in, in my experience, adultery is just one of several other things. I think the adultery may be the, you know, straw that breaks the camel's back and kind of forces someone to file, but they're just, as you said, other symptoms. These people were probably going to be in a divorce case sooner rather than later anyway. Right.
0: Now, maybe one exception is people who have a sex addiction, right. that even if they're in a happy marriage, they mm-hmm. may act out sexually because they have a, a problem that's real called sex addiction, and those are sad cases. Have you ever had experience with those cases? I have.
1: I absolutely have, um, and they are sad, especially if there are children involved, and I mean, I do think that, as you as you said, it's an addiction, and they just frankly can't help themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's uh, it's hard to treat. I mean, my... We work with mental health professionals a lot, and what they tell us is that's one of the addictions that's really hard to treat for some reason, and people don't always um, rein it in, and they do a lot of self-destructive dangerous sexual stuff sometimes.
1: Right, absolutely. And even while engaging in maybe some of those dangerous acts, I think people may not even understand or fully grasp the danger that they're placing themselves, the danger in which they're potentially placing their partner, and maybe even their children to some extent.
0: Yes, agreed, because they're in a dark world sometimes that invites criminals into their lives.
1: But the average
0: case, it's not that.
1: Right. The average case is not that. They're just having an affair
0: with the Mm -hmm. neighbor somebody they work with Mm -hmm. or their high school sweetheart they reconnected with on Facebook. Right,
1: exactly. And (laughs) I can't tell you how many cases I've had where the high school sweetheart scenarios come up, but that's a common one. one.
0: Facebook has a lot of good things about it, but there's some bad (laughs) things. Right, exactly.
1: (laughs) Definitely, Definitely. The
0: reconnection. Uh, And we're not blaming Facebook. I I like a lot of things about Facebook. (laughs) But that I do see that, is that's how they connect sometimes. And they're lonely or their marriage is already, as we said, failed and not doing well. And so they start over-communicating with that person, that old sweetheart, and then it turns into something else.
1: Right. Absolutely.
0: Okay. So it's not good to have an affair, but the judges are not going to freak out and condemn them and burn a cross in their yard.
1: Right. Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> exactly i mean I, th- I do think that the court would be interested in knowing the extent of maybe money that's spent on the paramour so for example um texas does recognize we typically call it a waste claim um and so if the part if one party is um spending money for the benefit of their paramour then the court may you know be more inclined to compensate the wrong spouse for the loss and value to the community estate um so that is another way you know that adultery may impact the division of the assets. However, it's, you know, beyond just the act of the adultery, you have to actually kind of go and quantify if there was monetary waste, um, you know, to the detriment of one party and the community estate, frankly.
0: I've seen cases where they didn't really spend any money. In fact, maybe the affair partner paid Mm -hmm. for things. Mm -hmm. And then I've seen cases where they're setting that person up in an apartment and they're having a baby with that person.
1: Absolutely, I can (laughs) recall a case that I had where Um, The accusation was that one party had spent in excess of $800,000 on their paramour and the wrong spouse thought that they were entitled to recoup, you know, at least one half of all the money that was wasted and so that was the claim and that, that spouse pursued it. We actually settled that case outside of litigation, and the spouse was able to recover some of those um, monies that were expended for the paramour. I agree. Yeah, I, I do, too. I do, too. I do Don't too. spend
0: my hard-earned money. It's like <laughs> right. adding insult to injury, exactly. right? Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's bad enough you're cheating mm-hmm. on me now. Wait a minute. I wanted that money. Right. So adultery is one bad act that we see in divorces. What are some other bad acts that we see?
1: Right. So I think um, maybe you segued, or it was a perfect segue to bring up the sex addiction, but mental health. Um, actually plays a large role in a lot of our cases. Um, I actually think that, you know, as a divorce attorney through the pandemic, I actually saw an increase in mental health related issues Mm -hmm. in my cases through COVID. Um, And then with that also, I think kind of coupled and brings in addiction generally. So alcohol addiction, drug addiction, all of those types of things that may impact not only um, cases without children, but certainly and obviously cases that involve children as well.
0: Oh, I agree. So I'll tell you a funny story. Mental health isn't funny, right? But Mm -hmm. you have to laugh at some of this. So I had a client. She wasn't even a client yet, but she had an appointment to come maybe be a client. And she showed up ahead of that appointment a different day. And she had a metal, large briefcase. And she said, "Um, I think that my husband put a bomb in this briefcase. And she brought it to our office. <laughs> yeah, why, and, why would
1: she bring it to and you? So my
0: office is calling me saying, "I wasn't even there that day. I was, you know, doing something mm-hmm. for a client, somebody else." So my office called and said, "What do we do?" I said, "Well, I don't know what you can do, but call the police." And so the bomb squad came oh, and. Wow. Oh, it wow. was not a bomb. It was full of tools. So it was heavy, mm-hmm. but it, and she goes, oh yeah, those are my father's tools. So she was paranoid. Mm-hmm. I mean, she just had a mental health condition that caused her to be paranoid and that did negatively affect her marriage. But I told her when she did come to meet with me, I said, listen, I'm only going to represent you if you go to the psychologist of my choosing and do whatever they say. And then when she'd kind of get too paranoid to function again, I would say, I'd call her a psychologist and say, you need upper medication because <laughs> <laughs> there is good medication for that. Right. So we do have cases where the mental health, unfortunately, has you know contributed to the failure of their marriage, but it also can make it challenging for us to represent them.
1: Oh, absolutely. In several different ways. I think you know, one question I always ask myself is if I think there are, are underlying mental health issues, does it render the person um, incapacitated? Because if so, then I need to approach a case completely differently. Um, but separate and apart from from that extreme, um, you know, just daily sort of, you know, regimented mental health issues that would impact the divorce case, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Um, I typically would only want to represent a person if they're, you know, confronting those issues head on and making sure that they're doing what they need to do to either, one, rehabilitate themselves or, two, make sure that they are the best version of themselves to the extent possible.
0: I think people have the opposite reaction sometimes. They think, I need to hide my problem from the judge. And my experience is judges will forgive anything if you take personal responsibility and if you're taking positive steps to Improve the situation. So mm-hmm. I'm in your camp 100%. Like, hit it head on and let's go get help for it. One example you brought up is substance abuse and pandemic. Boy, we saw an uptick in all of that, right? right, right. Whatever somebody's bad habit was, mm-hmm. it, it increased. Right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so some of us gained weight. That would be <laughs> me. And luckily, though, that is not as dangerous as. You know, being blackout drunk on a regular. So the people who are drinking too much, that can really impact their parenting, right? Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think, you know, what the court is always concerned with is the best interest of the child. And knowing that if someone is... To use your word i think blackout drunk all the time you know that renders them incapable of caring for their children you know who's going to be making the decisions if the parent is is blackout drunk who's going to be um, getting the children to and from who's supervising the children all of those things um <clears throat> that are effect of um, the alcohol use will impact their ability to parent their children and so the best thing that person can do if they don't want to be disqualified in certain ways from having the right To parent their child is to confront those issues rehabilitate themselves and make sure that they are you know again the best version of themselves if not all the time at least during their parenting time if they've already separated from the other parent
0: i had a client and he was um had a great job i mean really high skilled job well paying and he had to travel for work mm-hmm. and his employer was worried, I guess, about his drinking. There'd been some allegation. They flew someone out to where he was on the job and made him test at eight in the morning. Oh, wow. And he tested positive for alcohol at eight in the morning. Oh, wow. So oh, he lost wow. his job. So, you know, not tending to our alcohol problem impacts us in every way. So he loses his job. Then his wife files for divorce. Serves him with restrictive Mm -hmm. documents. You can't be around the child. So he comes to hire me. He's still drinking at this time. And he has no access to his child. And I said, listen, I want you to go to Innovation 360 and get a substance abuse evaluation. You have to tell them the truth. Rather, they're going to depend on what you're telling them to determine if you have a problem. And then they'll give you a treatment plan recommendation. And we don't have to ever tell anyone we did that and you don't have to do what they say but we just need that as a first data point cuz he was still in denial when he's talking to me like what are you talking about i know he has a problem you don't lose your job right exactly. and have this happen mm-hmm. to you and not mm-hmm. have a problem mm-hmm. it was just the level of problem and what do we do right. so he went to innovation 360 he got the he did what i said and he ended up long story short getting sober and he got his after a bunch of hoops, he had to jump through. He got his child back. He got a normal relationship with his child. And he told me later, Melinda, because thank you so much for making me do that. I didn't want to do it. I went home after you told me and oh. had a drink. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't want to do it, but it changed my whole life. And he said he was in better relationship with his mm-hmm. daughter than he ever had been.
1: Oh, I'm sure. And and to your earlier point, the courts love a good redemption story. Yes! And so, you know, everyone that suffers from these issues should not be afraid to just tackle them and get on the path to either sobriety or to really taking care of themselves because, um, you know, the act in and of itself, the uh, mental health issue in and of itself is not going to be disqualifying. I think it's failure to acknowledge it failure to you know take serious um, steps to change it um, or to, to remedy it um, would be potentially disqualifying. So there's always a path to a better day. And I think as um, divorce attorneys, we all know several different experts, several different types of experts who can help someone navigate those issues and, and get to a better day.
0: Now what's funny from a lawyer perspective, for all the lawyers listening, That sounds so great, and it makes you think, this is Mm -hmm. rewarding to do this work. Mm -hmm. I helped somebody in a significant way. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had to do the work, right? Right. right. So I don't get all the credit. But I get a little credit because I sent him in that direction. Right,
1: exactly.
0: The bad part of the story is once he stopped drinking, he was what I would call a dry drunk at first, Mm -hmm. right? He Mm -hmm. still has all the underlying problems that caused him to drink. He doesn't have new coping mechanisms yet, right? So he was a horrible client. Mm -hmm. He was mean to me. He would yell at me. He would hang up on me because I was going through the journey with him of the beginning of that transformation. So Doing this work isn't always lovely. Oh,
1: it's it's definitely not. Um, but I think doing this work, I think we all realize we meet our clients where they are and we do our best to get them to a better day. And so, um, you know, while I wish I could say that every day was kind of sunshine and roses <laughs> with clients, uh, that's not always the case. <laughs> no, not always the case.
0: Oh, I had one client that I had permission to say to him, I'm going to hang up now. Please take your medication and call me back later. And that's how bad it would be because he was just so rage. He was in so much rage. And we're the ones that are available to talk to. They don't want to tell everybody what's going on. I do think whether someone has a serious history of mental health or not, When they're going through a divorce, which is a major life change, Mm -hmm. they should be in counseling, don't you
1: think? Oh, absolutely. And I think even if they, I agree with you, whether or not there's a serious history of mental health, I think everyone could benefit from counseling. It's an adjustment. It's a major life change. And there's always going to be some, you know, um, learning curve to that new life change. Um, And yeah, I think everyone could benefit from counseling, especially while they're going through the litigation process.
0: There are some cultures that just don't believe Mm -hmm. in mental health. Mm -hmm. What do you tell those people to try to help them yeah, see I mean, the I de- light?
1: Definitely encourage, encourage, encourage. Um, even though my title is attorney and counselor, I can only do so much. So I, I, I'm fine to be that sounding board, um, but at some point I just try to steer them in the direction of, of getting the help they need. And I find in you know, those cases where there may be some resistance to formal counseling, maybe there are alternative routes you know, to kind of effectuate the same t- sort of um, impact. So whether that's through like a religious center, whether that's you know, creating maybe a support group, or you know, at a minimum maybe just some um, co-parenting classes or those types of things to help them get to a better day with their you know soon-to-be ex-spouse
0: yes it doesn't mean you're crazy if you go seek some help i tell them it's like a coach Exactly. like sometimes Mm -hmm. if we call them a life coach that Mm -hmm. seems more attractive and i agree with you about the religious leaders i love religious leaders of all religions and i've had cases where i was like talking to the rabbi every other day
1: absolutely (laughs) absolutely i've I've even, you know, steered people toward, you know, like a mediation maybe at a mosque or those types of things. Because, you know, if they can feel comfortable and if they can reach a resolution that puts them on a path to continue to work together, especially if they're very young children and, you know, they're going to be co-parenting for upwards of 18 years, um, I think that's very important that they know how to navigate life after divorce. Mm -hmm.
0: And we could work in conjunction with their religious leader, if everybody's on board for it, oh, right?
1: Absolutely. No hiccups there, everyone just has to be on board. And and I'm I'm always glad to do that. I'm always <laughs> glad to explore options that you know help people um, reach resolution.
0: There are some religions that have a separate divorce process from the legal divorce process. Right. And I've had clients come in and say, Hey, I need part of this to be that I get that divorce too. The Catholicism has that, Judaism has that. And they say, hey, I need to get, you know, which is Mm -hmm. in Judaism, the religious divorce. So sometimes we have to
1: involve that. Oh, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, maybe sometimes that means pursuing claims that maybe we otherwise wouldn't. Uh, maybe, for example, the adultery component that we just talked about, um, it could be really, really important in a case for religious reasons, separate and apart from the effects that it may or may not have on the property division. And so, um, you know, I think just understanding what the client needs, gauging those expectations and helping them reach their goals is definitely very important.
0: Okay. So let's say we don't have a religious reason And we're not at the point where we know yet for trial if we're going to need a finding of adultery for division of property. We're early in the case. Most cases settle. True? Absolutely. So is your typical practice that, hey, right off the bat, we're going to plead for adultery or... We can always re-plead later.
1: (laughs) I typically take the approach of we can always re-plead later. I think that if there's an opportunity to settle, it may lie somewhere, you know, earlier in the case as opposed to later in the case. And so I don't want to do anything to unnecessarily inflame, you know, the issues. Um, So usually I'll start off with kind of maybe a, a mild filing and then amend if I need to and become, you know, more aggressive as the case progresses.
0: So we can amend usually up to seven days before trial, right? Correct. Yeah. So there's no, I'm in totally in your camp. The statistic we always hear, and who knows, I, I don't always trust statistics, mm-hmm. but the statistic we always hear is 85% of cases settle. I, that's true in my practice, probably even higher.
1: Right, I think it's higher in my practice Yeah, well. so
0: maybe mm-hmm. 90% of right. cases settle. So with that in mind, as lawyers, we should be thinking about how to get the best deal,
1: exactly. not
0: how to get a judge to penalize someone. We're probably... of the time, not going to be in front of a judge. Right. right? Exactly. So when, when I talk to clients, I try to help them realize that I just yesterday, somebody was like, I want to plead for adultery. (laughs) What about the adultery? I was like, well, we're, what we're really going to have to do is get the best deal possible from this person. Right. And, if we just make them mad every way, every chance we get.
1: <laughs> right, because that's true. Our ability to settle the case is dependent upon our ability to work effectively with the other side. And so, you know, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Why, Why upset them unnecessarily? Because it's just going to impact our ability to get a good deal for our client. And yeah. if the adultery issue is not for religious reasons... Um, you know, they can take their pound of flesh somewhere else, I think.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And it's hard for people when they're hurting to always hear that, isn't it?
1: Right. It it definitely is. It definitely is, especially because, um, you know, it is a hard time in their life. And I think they've probably consulted their friends before consulting us. And you know, I think maybe sometimes it it could be the embarrassment, the shame, Um, you know, all of those types of things impact sort of what a client wants and what they think they're goals would be, but I I will tell you nine times out of 10, um, I think that clients would much rather resolve their cases outside of court. I think that it's in their best interest to do so. It actually saves them money. And so that, you know, one or 2% a judge may give them for the adultery alone, they would spend it trying to get to a trial as opposed to just, you know, taking a deal earlier.
0: Yes, I agree. Okay, so we wish they wouldn't commit adultery, right? Oh,
1: absolutely. 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 That's <laughs> bad. Makes it harder to bad. settle. Right. You're going
0: <laughs> to spend more money on your case. You're going to spend more time on your case when adultery is part of it. But they don't listen to us sometimes, do they?
1: Oh, a lot of the times they do not. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so if they're going to have the affair anyway... What are some things we can tell them to just not rub
1: it in the other person's face? I mean, I think discretion is key. Um, If if I know a client is actively having an affair, you know, I I just make sure I apprise them of Everything that could happen in the case that, you know, whatever's done in the dark is going to come to light. So, you know, whether that's through the discovery process, whether that's, you know, if you buy something for your, you know, paramour and we have to produce the credit card statements, your spouse will see it. And so, you know, ideally, I always want my clients to be sort of on the up and up. Um, I definitely think that if someone serves me with a request for discovery, which is, you know, a request to exchange information, if I have it, I'm producing it. Um, and so I don't typically play those types of games. I don't play those types of games. So it's going to come out. So, you know, um, don't rub it in the other spouse's face. You certainly don't want to do that because then, you know, the case won't settle. Um, and definitely don't, don't waste community assets, um, you know, doing those types of things with your paramour.
0: Everything that's done in the dark comes to light. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that's a great. And
1: sometimes in the most bizarre, unexpected ways. <laughs> that's a know. great
0: statement. <laughs> One thing that I encourage people not to do, and I know you've seen this in your cases, and I certainly have in mine, is don't bring the affair partner to the child's soccer game.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know what also is funny? Don't bring the paramour to court with you. That is the worst <laughs> thing you can do. Like, don't show up to your temporary <laughs> orders hearing with your girlfriend. That, don't it's not that. a good look. Yeah, don't do that. Please don't do that.
0: <laughs> and they, I'm truly, I think some people, they're just so in love with being in love with this new person, that they think this person should be there all the time and be around their kids all the time. And that's really not appropriate, is it?
1: Oh, it's definitely not appropriate. In fact, most courts um, will enter an injunction that uh, the party who is having the affair is not allowed to have the children either around their paramour at a specific time or even maybe introduce the children to the paramour. Um, so that is definitely inappropriate.
0: So if they won't take our advice and not have one or pause the one they're already having the affair, keep it discreet. Right.
1: Exactly. exactly. I had
0: one client who got a go phone, you mm-hmm. know, like a, she called it the terrorist phone. <laughs>
1: I want to hear about I guess this. That's what terrorists use. <laughs> uh, okay. And
0: she would, you know, just text with the or talk to the affair partner on mm-hmm. the go phone. Cause it doesn't have a record. So she oh. wouldn't end up oh. with, You know, having to produce text messages because there is no Mm -hmm. record for those. Oh, wow. And then she would hide it in the, where you have your extra tire in your car. She would hide it there. Oh,
1: geez. (laughs) Oh, wow. She's a mastermind. But, you know, like Uh, I said, lawyers know experts. And so there may be an expert out there who could retrieve something on that terrace. Well,
0: and it always (laughs) changes, right? The the technology is ever changing. Uh Mm
1: -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Brandon, tell us how somebody could find you if they wanted to
1: find you. Sure. So my office is located at 8,115 Preston Road, Suite 270 in Dallas, Texas, 75225. My phone number is 214-692-8200, and my email address is bjoseph at mcclure-lawgroup.com
0: okay it's so great to have you on the show today
1: thank you for joining us thank you
0: okay now our tip for the day don't have an affair wait until you're divorced to have the affair i know it's not an affair anymore if you do that but really the reason it's better not to have an affair is it makes your divorce cost more and take longer because we're going to have to deal with all the anger sadness fear that that affair has caused and you could just have a quicker, cheaper divorce if you haven't had an affair. So, tip for the day, wait till after the divorce to have the affair. Thank you so much for joining us on the Melinda Eitzen show today. I would love to hear from you if you have any suggestions for what you'd like to hear on the podcast. We are reachable at melinda at d Thanks for joining us.